The presenting sponsor for On Education is Schoology. Schoology's passion lies in helping instructors and students have the best education experience possible. Schoology is a collaborative, student-focused, and faculty-centered learning management system. Students love Schoology because it gives them 24-7 access to course materials, real-time feedback from their instructors, and easy-to-use collaborative tools. Teachers love the streamlined workflow, integrated apps such as Google and Microsoft tools, and the ability to view evidence of student learning for making instructional decisions. To learn more about what is possible with Schoology, simply visit Schoology.com. If there's anyone that's a loser right now, it's this dude, and he's about to go to jail, and I think he knows it. Welcome to On Education. I'm Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We will discuss the one-year anniversary of the Parkland school shooting, how extra arts education is boosting writing scores, the results of the Denver strikes, and our guests this week are NEA Foundation Global Learning Fellows, Sarah Merklowitz-Keener and Noah Zeichner. Well, first, we're going to talk about video games. Of course. (laughs) We might as well go light first. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Uh, so, I mean, totally addicted to farm together. I know that uh, people, I'm sure, have seen the tweets um, because especially Steve has been tweeting up a, a storm about playing farm together. Uh, I'm pretty addicted. I'm kind of hooked. This is this is like Farmville plus plus. And it's it, I won't lie. It's a little fun. Yeah, it's super fun. It's uh, the best part, I think, is just that, that it's collaborative. So you can actually help each other uh, on your different farms uh, to be able to harvest crops, plant things, build stuff. Um, yeah, and it has some of that uh, Farmville uh, type of components that you would play on your phone, except I, I think the game is very cute and uh, yeah. good graphics and very easy to play. And in, it seems like you can play on almost any computer too. So it's really, really good. I've been totally like planning my crop schedule based on my availability to sit in front of my computer for half an hour and like rotate the crops after they're ready. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, like for sure, I have crops that are ready. Like it's one forty-seven right now. I have crops that are ready at like 2.30. So we got to be done at 2.30, Glenn, so that I can go change my... I got to go pull some potatoes. You got to get those crops out of the ground and plant some new ones. <laughs> right, right. I'm going to need to recruit some people too. My farm is getting huge Nice. Too, so I need to recruit some people too to help get me. Get some farm hands. I, I, said to, I said, yeah, I said to Steve, it's, 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 uh, what did I say? It's, it's beyond me now. It's bigger than me. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of work to much. do <laughs> overwhelming um so a civilization expansion uh so came out this week um gathering storm civilization six gathering storm came out and i mean i already knew all of the things that were coming out for it except for this one thing and i think it's ended up being like the coolest feature of the whole expansion did you ever not a lot of people did this, but like, I mean, maybe some hardcore gamers did this idea of saving it, playing a game and saving it and then putting it on a disc or something and then bringing it over to your buddy's house and, and them loading it up and making a play, doing a play, whatever, and then saving it and giving it back to you. Um, did you ever do anything like that? Or I guess the other example that people referenced when I brought this up was chess and how people would like have a chessboard and they'd make a move and then they'd write the move on a letter and then mail the letter to someone. And then they would have a chessboard set up in the same configuration and make that move. And you play chess by mail. Hmm. Did you ever do anything like that? Did not, but that sounds pretty, pretty hardcore. <laughs> it's old school too, right? So yeah. this is what you did before you had the internet and you could just play together with people all the time. Mm-hmm. So Civ six came out with a, they call it cloud play. Um, but I'm calling it like the Civ 6 slow roll because basically what you're going to do is you you all gather in a staging area and sign up to play the game. And then you you choose your, your Civ that you're going to use and um, you, you set up the game as if you're setting up a normal multiplayer game. But the way it works now is instead of all playing together at the same time and just waiting for each other to do their turns, you, you do your turn and then you can log off. Yeah. And then everyone else can do their turns when they're ready. 
and when it's your turn again, it'll send you a message you get on notified. Steam. Yep. Yeah, it'll send you an email. It'll send you a message on Steam. It's your turn, and you just log in and play your turn and then log out again. So, I mean, games are going to take forever. Mm-hmm. But the problem with Civilization is that games took forever anyways. And you never finished a game because, I mean, so, like, the, the times when, like, Steve or you or, or I or Paul DeVarzi would would play together, we wouldn't even get, you know, 150 turns in because it takes so long to play a multiplayer game. Sure. Easily twice twice as long as a normal game. So I think this is gonna take forever to play, but I think it's gonna be fun as hell. I'm I'm pretty excited about it. So we're gonna start a game today, hopefully, um, and and see how it goes. And Canada is in Civilization Six for the first time. Canada is a Civ in a Civ game as an official civilization. So pretty big deal. Pretty <laughs> it, it is a pretty big deal. And we're very peaceful, as you would expect. <laughs> You you can't declare wars against Canada by surprise. Okay. And Canada cannot declare surprise wars against other people. Okay. They have to be ju- they have to be justified wars. Um. What else? Our our famous our special building is a hockey rink. Oh yeah. Um, very, <laughs> that makes sense. Very uh, appropriate. And we can build farmlands on tundra. So all that ice at the top and the bottom of the map uh, now has become useful areas for anyone playing a, a Canada Civ. So, um, you know, fun time. I'm a giant civilization nerd, and uh, and this was really exciting. I'm excited to play Canada, and uh, and I'm excited to destroy Paul DeVarzi and Steve Isaacs and wow. Irvin in, a, in a game of civilization. As the peaceful Canadians, you guys are going to get dominated. <laughs> <laughs> He's already talking. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the, the, the last gaming thing I wanted to mention is, uh, I mean, only just something I've noticed the last week, um, the last maybe two weeks since FETC, um, is so much buzz about esports. Like everyone is talking about esports and education. Um, I, I know that, uh, our, our, our friend who hasn't been on the podcast yet, Dr. Haskell is doing awesome stuff at Boise state as well. And, there's so much going on with esports and education. Um, I just saw Alice Keeler um, posted on Facebook that she was at a conference in Alaska and someone was doing a session on esports. And it's like, who is this? I, I want to know because uh, I want to get them also connected. And there's there's colleges and universities popping up everywhere with programs. This is, I think this is a thing, man. I think we got this. Oh, yeah. It's going to be it is already becoming the thing and that it's just going to, it's going to get huge. And it's just a matter of everybody kind of uh, figuring out what does it mean to be at the high school level? Yeah. Uh, and then, cause the college levels are already happening now. And so there's examples uh, for example, Boise state university and a bunch of other universities that have already set yeah. the bar. I mean, they're even putting it on ESPN Um so, I mean, I'm talking about the university championships. So that, that's, a big deal. that's a really big deal. It's just legitimizing it. And then now uh, pushing it back into the amateur world, the high school or high school sports scholastic world there, and then figuring out how does that all fit together, which is going to be awesome. Nice. Uh, so transitioning to not awesome things now. Yeah. Um, so let's listen. I've calmed down from this. I actually totally forgot that Donald Trump Jr. called all teachers losers. Um, I mean, I don't even know what to say without like getting too angry about this other than like, I mean, just think about the source, I guess is all I'm going to say. If there's anyone that's a loser right now, it's this dude and he's about to go to jail and I think he knows it. And so, I mean, I'm having a hard time taking it seriously uh, I'm glad it kind of fell off other than the t-shirt, which is awesome. You should actually, we should put the t-shirt in the show notes. Did you buy that t-shirt? I got it. Yep. I'm, it's get, being sent to me right now. Loser teachers. Lose, yep. Just another loser teacher or yep. something like yep. that? Yep. It's the, the picture on my Facebook. Yep. Yep. Just, awesome. yep. Just another loser teacher. And uh, no, I mean, it is a big deal because as we'll link the Washington Post article there, uh, yeah. about this comment. And really, it's just, there's something that was, when he said this at that rally, was so intentional. A lot of the things yeah. that Donald Trump, his dad, the president, 
says, I think are just things that he just comes up with off the top of his head. This was something very, very intentional about the way that he posed this, uh, you know, statement and basically stating that uh, we are indoctrinating our students our students into uh, a, a socialist socialism and this uh, socialistic viewpoints. Uh, and that's part of his loser comment uh, to us, but there, there's something uh, really dark uh, about the way he set this up and basically saying things like you can stand up to them, you know, basically saying you can stand up to these teachers, uh, which if you don't know around the world, in Germany and the Netherlands and uh, throughout the world, there's some really extreme right-wing uh, factions that are pushing against any types of these things that we all want in our lives. For example, uh, uh, healthcare, you know, for everybody uh, and a great yeah. education for everybody. Uh, and they are saying that, uh, that they're reporting teachers for teaching, you know, anything that has to do with, you know, just regular, what we would consider to be just global viewpoints. You know, it's not like we're trying to indoctrinate kids into a specific anything, uh, but it's already happening around the world. This kind of super extreme right wing things, and I think that's where he's borrowing a lot of his language from. It's so frustrating, um, and and it does matter to students when students hear this stuff. They, it, it's almost like a permission slip in some cases. I mean, this is the president's son. Uh, saying this and and you haven't heard the president say listen not all teachers are are losers there's great teachers he didn't say that at all i mean wouldn't you think that that would be the president's job to say my son shouldn't have said that teachers are great people and we should you know say something nice yeah he doesn't for care. the love of god say something <laughs> um you know but he didn't and so it's a permission slip and now you've literally permitted um students to to adopt you know, these views that their teachers are losers and people that they shouldn't respect and, and look up to when I think that in, in most cases, teachers are the exact person that you should be, you know, respecting and looking up to. It's, it's sad. And it's happening. Like you said, it's, ha I mean, we're ha it's, it's happening up here in Ontario. Like Doug Ford is undermining teachers all over the place right now. Um, you know, with, with um, different kind of things getting involved in the curriculum and um accusing student unions of says crazy marxist nonsense and then he didn't even describe he didn't even back it up like he didn't know what he actually said it's it's a it's a we um we have the the equivalent of what's the the jones steve jones thing um Oh, I'm glad I'm forgetting the name of it, but there's a there's a thing called rebel media up here. Mm -hmm. It's it's like the it's like the psycho right wing, you know, news whatever. Sure, Rush Limbaugh Canada. kind of thing. Yeah, it's so it's it's basically like Doug Ford barfing up rebel media stuff, you know, and not really even knowing what it said because Doug Ford's a dummy, just like Donald Trump. So, I mean, this is it's really frustrating uh, to to hear, you know the president's son it, listen yeah I, i'm practically i'm a democratic socialist that's that's my ideology so whatever i i don't think it's a bad thing necessarily to teach social democracy in schools as it is i mean that's if you if you're looking for social democracy ideals it's egalitarianism and 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 fairness and equity and and peace and health care and education and high qualities of social services so that the the lowest among us can be uh, raised up and, and made healthy and, and better. Um, you know, so if, if you want to call those things bad and you want to call me a loser for having those ideas, then, um, you know, I'm just another loser teacher too, I suppose. Right. Yeah, no. And I mean, I, I would say too, Mike, that I want to emphasize that the majority of our teachers do not bring in any kind of ideals into their classrooms. They understand that no, there's a, that yeah, there's a line sometimes. in the United States, at least there's, yeah. there's very fine line, they're about 
the way that you teach and making sure that you teach both sides of everything. So all of our social studies teachers yeah, totally. uh, make sure that they represent both sides of the aisle and they actually stay clear of making sure that the students don't know which side they actually uh, represent. One of my good friends, uh, Mike Kropp, who had actually passed away a few years ago, he was amazing at this. He basically played devil's advocate with all of his students, though he might have been someone that was more on the left. You would never yeah. know that by the way that he taught because he wanted our students, and that's what most of our teachers want, wanted our students to make sure that they think for themselves, that they understand all the viewpoints of all the things that they're not just spitting out, as you just said, something that they heard on TV or that their parents are saying that they understand what it is that that is out there. And then if they're going to support a viewpoint that they really truly understand it and then have passion for that. And it didn't matter if it was on the right or in the center or on the left, uh, more importantly, that they were just educated. So that's super important for us in the United States that we yeah. that we do that. And so when it's a misrepresentation of all of our teachers to say that we're indoctrinating them into some kind of, you know, whatever it might be, you know, their belief of socialism or whatever it is. Yeah, 100%. So about a year ago, uh, I guess it was Friday, a year ago, Friday, no, a year ago, Thursday was the Parkland shooting. Um, and, and um, I guess in our notes, you, you we had wrote what is what has changed. And, and then I had wrote nothing at all. I had actually written something a little more obscene. But uh, I mean, it's it's been a pretty tough year. I mean, there's been multiple other shootings. There was literally a shooting on Friday. Yeah. In in Illinois um, on the, the day after the anniversary, um, you know, the only good thing, I, I, I guess, from my opinion, I'll let you give yours in a second. My opinion is there's two uh, two good things I think maybe have come from this one is that the awareness and the conversation has risen quite a bit. Like it's it's on everyone's mind all the time now. It definitely was a topic of the midterm elections. Uh, and, you know, uh, a lot of Democrats got elected in the House, a lot new Democrats, and that it was a central topic to a lot of those people. So I think that's important. I guess bump stocks are going to be illegal in starting in March. Uh, and that kind of came as a result of the, the, the Las Vegas thing. But uh, I mean, that's, I guess, an advancement. But but man, we got a long ways to go here, eh? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think another huge thing that did happen besides the awareness is the is the rising of our youth, which we started actually this podcast in March, kind of in March, when we up. when we were talking about this is what our central topic was, uh, was the students walking out, the students rising, the students empow being empowered right now um, and saying we need to change this for us now uh has the policies have the policies changed uh significantly nope uh we will see uh you know, now that we have you know some new members of congress or whatever it might be uh, right. i think that really will be see the biggest changes happen in 2020 uh not only in the election but also this topic is the majority of people believe that we need to do something massive uh, overhauling our gun laws, especially when it deals to automatic uh, type of weapons. So the bump stock stocks thing is is a huge deal that should have already been you know happened right away. And then yeah. now the movement the, and also the, people's eyes wide open about the NRA's influence on our elections and then on the policies that actually govern us. Uh, and so that's a really good positive thing for our schools. Now we've talked about security at schools. School security is probably the top topic that our school boards and our superintendents and principals uh, have on their priority list, uh, which it should be. But it's it's also devastating that that's what we have to that has to be the number one thing that we're concerned about. Uh, how do we keep our kids safe? Uh, we need to do that at the legislative level, also at the national level, and making sure that that uh, gun laws are 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 they're changed significantly for who can obtain guns, what types of guns are out there, and those types of things in the United States. I think it's about to happen. Uh, it's just that it's a super slow process, as legislation usually is. I like your optimism. At least, um, you know, 
20, 2020 can't come soon enough. And, and I think that we can make a, uh, well, I guess not me, but you guys down there, my friends can, can really do some good work and, and hopefully, uh, get some elected officials in that'll actually make some changes. Uh, it'd be nice to see a majority like, like Obama had in 2008, where you can just like do things, uh, and, and not have to, to kind of worry about filibusters and stuff like that. Um, you know, let's get some things done because uh, there's there's a ways to go. Um, I, I think it's no surprise that uh, we're going to post an article in the in the show notes. Uh, extra arts education boosts writing scores. I think one of the things that people were always surprised to hear from me about when I when I've talked or or because I was always a, I was a computer science teacher. Um, you know, there was a perception that I wasn't into drama and art and stuff like that. And I am. I actually think it's some of this stuff is absolutely amazing. I wish I had the talent to teach it and to 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 do it. I'm not much of a, a dramatist uh, or an artist, but I'm a fan of people who are like a giant fan of people who are. And and I think that it's uh, it's a skill like my wife has that I absolutely do not have that I think brings so much to education um, that it, so it doesn't seem like a surprise to me that you know um not only are students um scores in in various academic areas being boosted when they're um spending more time in the arts but you know their 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 social emotional learning their compassion and and stuff like that is being boosted as well yep and the main thing that we need to remember is that this isn't a competition between math and writing time or reading oh. time uh, and and then something else. And really in the United States, we look at these things, we even call them extras or extracurricular activities, mm-hmm. and they should be the essential components of, of a student's education. The most important parts for me, honestly, about my son's education is that it's super well-rounded and that he gets an opportunity to sing in a choir, to play an yeah. instrument in a band, and then to do anything else that he might be interested in, including learning a second language, uh, art classes, uh, industrial arts, or technical type of arts where they're actually learning those types of things. And I see some things here like theater or visual arts. Uh, those things yeah. are not the extracurriculars. They are the essential components of basically being good humans uh, and really mm-hmm. having a broad sense of what it does it mean to be a citizen in the world. Uh, and there's tons of our students where their passion lies in these you know, in these specific things. And and we should make sure that they have an ability to be able to go ahead and do those on a daily basis, not in a every uh, once in a while kind of thing, but on a daily basis. And the more arts, as it says here, that you have the better writing scores, the better other scores you're going to have, uh, which is in this case proven by research. Yeah. Super interesting article. We'll link it in the, the show notes for everyone to read. Um, the Denver uh, teacher strike is over and when we come back, we're going to talk about it a little bit. Quests. One of Classcraft's most popular features with over 100,000 lessons created by teachers and 3 million learning objectives completed by students so far is now part of Classcraft's free offerings. In 2019, your students won't just be learning multiplication, chemistry, or any other content. They'll be saving the kingdom. Transform your lessons into adventures with Quest today. Visit classcraft.com for more information. All right, welcome back, friends, to the podcast. The strike was quick. Uh, it must have been painful. Um, and it's over now. Uh, the teachers in Denver um, uh, walked the picket lines for, I think, about three days. Uh, lowest paid teachers in the country, or one of the lowest paid states uh you know i think ranks 46 46 sixth oh that's a mouthful we're gonna edit that <laughs> ranked 40 <laughs> ranked 46th in the united states uh in average teacher pay which is pretty terrible it looks like they've come out on top uh in this this strike um with some huge returns uh glenn what do you think um, it, it was fantastic for the teachers. Their their movement was basically away from a, as we had talked about in the last episode, away from this uh, type of pay where it 
where it's connected to usually high stakes testing, which is called performance pay. Uh, some of yeah. that actually still exists at, for example, in Minnesota, uh, there was some, and it was part of this, uh, this theory, uh, that even, like I said, president Obama had, and this, uh, concept of race to the top uh, and basically adding funds to schools, but not really adding them fully and saying they're associated with specific measures of performance. Right. Uh, and in Denver, basically what it did is it held their average salary down and then only specific teachers, certain teachers receive these performance pay boosts. And even with the performance pay boost, they were still very underpaid. Uh, so they eliminated the majority of that, uh, those performance uh, pay and, and those components of the contract and went back to a similar to a, a, a normal uh, salary grid. Um, so that was a huge win for them, I believe. How about this 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 advancement in professional development? Yeah. So what? Like, yeah. Holy moly! Like the idea that there's going to be actually written into the contract um, PD units and in um, time to time to read and study and reflect and apply learnings. I mean, just that sentence alone is huge. I mean, that's. That's awesome. Yeah. So there's this professional development uh, unit proposal that's actually part of the contract now uh, that they're signing. And uh, basically a teacher uh, or a, probably even maybe a department proposes something to the district and they approve it. And they pro they uh, this proposal includes 45 hours, which include what Mike just described, which was uh, your time for instruction and participation and learning. And what it is is now the realization of a district stating that this type of professional development should be rewarded on a salary schedule. Yeah. That happens very rarely in the United States. Uh, mostly our salary grids are associated with uh, graduate credit units, which if you ask the majority right, right, of teachers, right. okay, yeah. if you ask the majority of teachers like myself, uh, how much learning and application takes place at the university level for your master's degree and how much you could apply it to what you're currently doing in yeah. your classroom, it's, it's a big disconnect. Even the best programs have a huge disconnect between those two things. So why not let the teachers develop a proposal that actually fits their, their school and benefits yeah. their students, and then they work on it have something at the end, they reflect on it and then apply those things to their classrooms and then their students benefit. And then this teacher can also say, hey, I actually moved uh, to another uh, uh, lane across the grid there to be able to go ahead because I did this thing. So uh, sure. a fantastic thing, example for other states to go ahead and follow other school districts too, to be able to follow. For sure. The, the money is a big deal. Uh, average raise uh, by, I think, starting pay by 7%. Average overall uh, increase in pay by 11.7%. Um, support staff getting uh, getting raises as well. Uh, bus drivers and stuff like that, I think I, I read as well. Potentially getting, getting pay increases. And, and, I, and I added this line at the bottom of the notes because I think it's hilarious. It... it I would love to know actually how many how many um, folks in the school boards in Ontario are getting bonuses. I never even imagined a five figure bonus for a senior school administrator actually being a thing that happened, let alone something that you know they would be not wanting to cut because of a negotiation. But uh, yeah, five figure bonuses for senior school administrators coming to an end. Hey. That's great. You know, let's put some more food on the table for teachers instead of giving everyone ten, twenty thousand dollar bonuses. These I don't know who these people are. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I mean, what's what's crazy and what people don't understand maybe about Colorado is that it's the second coming of California. And and by what what I mean by that is about uh, fourteen years ago when we left uh, Colorado. Uh, we knew that we were going to be outpriced to live there as far as teachers. Huh. And that was oh, 14 okay. years ago. Uh, and we knew that basically the, the house values were increasing so drastically right. at that point that our pay was not going to keep up with that. We weren't going to be able to afford housing, basically. Yeah. So what yeah. what's happened, though, in the last 
uh, I, I don't know if people have heard, but uh, Colorado passed a law that uh, makes recreational marijuana legal. And what happened then is it blew up their economy in a in a great way. Tons of people have moved to Colorado, especially the Denver area. Uh, and what has happened is a lot of people with a lot of money have raised the values of all the homes and property values and just made it super expensive to live there. Mm. All the while, teaching has never, ever come close to keeping up with this. And and what yeah. was funny about it, the whole entire thing, Mike, is that when this was about to happen, they promised that they were going to put a certain percentage of this money into education. That was the biggest thing, that the, the sell yeah. on this is like, we're going to have the best schools, the best funded schools in the nation because we're going right. to pass this law and it never came true. And there was definitely some people that benefited from this. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's people who are mega, mega rich in Colorado, but that isn't your, your teachers aren't, didn't benefit at all. I mean, they didn't even keep up with the cost of living. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, now they, now they definitely need to use that sweet, sweet pot money for something. Yeah. Other than, you know, more pot, I guess. <laughs> <clears throat> it'll be good for good for the teachers say hey listen I, I i mean big win right this is a big win big win uh congratulations to your the teachers in denver and and then it's a good example for anyone else uh that's out there that's thinking of doing the exact same thing because they are not being funded correctly yeah you wrote it and you deserve it and uh congratulations hell of a job uh in denver and so when we come back, we're going to be joined by NEA Foundation Global Learning Fellows, Sarah Merklowitz-Keener and Noah Zeichner. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We're thrilled to be joined today by Sarah Merklowitz-Keener and Noah Zeichner. Uh, uh, these are NEA Foundation Global Learning Fellows and uh, teachers uh, from all over the U.S. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike and Glenn. Glad to be here. Awesome. Um, maybe we'll get a chance to give the listeners a little bit of an idea who you are and where you're from. Maybe we'll get Sarah to go first. Uh, just introduce yourself, share your background with our listeners. Sure. My name is Sarah Merklowitz-Keener, and I teach middle school special education, and I've taught language arts uh, in special education for the last eight years. And where I teach is specifically called MS-324, the Patria Mirabal Middle School, and it's named for one of the Mirabal sisters who famously were part of the resistance movement against the Dominican dictator, Rafael Trujillo, in the 50s and 60s. And so it's uh, in, in honor of the neighborhood where my school is, and it's predominantly Latino, a lot of Puerto Rican, Dominican, and Mexican families mostly, and others, and many, many of whom are first or second generation immigrants. And now it may seem like in a major city such as New York that a global perspective would be a given. Uh, the borough of Queens is commonly referred to as the most diverse place on the planet, but real and authentic engagement uh, among the different communities here doesn't always happen just because you're in a really genetically diverse subway car sure. with others. So in my teaching, I always try to bring in texts and different voices and real world experiences that can uh, and a lot of hands on uh, resources so that I can try to broaden the experiences and perspectives of, of specifically my students. And my name is Noah Zeichner. I teach high school social studies and Spanish at uh, in, Seattle, in Seattle Public Schools, and I've been teaching in the district for about 15 years. Uh, I also work in a consulting teacher role, working with my school district's international education department. And we have uh, 10 schools out of the 100 schools in Seattle Public uh, that are designated as international schools. So for the last um, 10 years or so, I've been involved in the global education world and, and um trying to make meaning out of what does it mean to be an international school. Super interesting. So, I mean, we live in a, um, and you, you said globalization and, and, and stuff like that. We live in a shrinking world, obviously, uh, where actions of one nation can impact the livelihood of people uh, in other nations. It's actually part of the kind of the thing about this podcast even is that I'm Canadian and Glenn is American. And we <laughs> talk about, you know, how, Canadians and Americans are are different and and one of the 
things that I bring is, you know, the perspective of America from outside of America. Um, and it's why I'm super hyper interested in American politics and American policy. I think it's really important. Um, what happens down there affects me up here every day. Um, what role um, do teachers play, do you think, in making sure students understand the interconnectedness uh, of our world? It's a great question. Well, you know, as we know, teaching is a global profession, and there are millions and millions of teachers all around the world, all with this important call to action right now. We have some some very challenging um, global problems that affect all of us on this planet, and um, I think there's no more important responsibility that a teacher anywhere in the world has right now than to help our students develop into active global citizens. Um, and I'll just say that when I got involved in uh, global ed work several years ago, I had a, a different understanding of what that meant to be a, a global educator. And um, at first, I, I looked at it as, you know, it's important to bring the world into my classroom, to um, teach my students about the places I've traveled, to help them understand different cultures. And and what I've come to understand over the last few years is that it's really um, the content, the global perspective in the curriculum is one slice of a global education. And really, um, the bulk of it are the skills and the competencies um, that young people need to interact with and work with people with different very with very different worldviews and perspectives um, to address uh, many of these really critical glo global challenges that we face today. Um, and uh, so teachers um, play a critical role in exposing young people to different perspectives, different ideas, different ways of uh, looking at these challenges, but also teachers themselves um, can play a role as change makers as well. Um, there's a there's a group of teachers, a large group of teachers down in El Paso, Texas, this weekend, taking a stand against child detention, and that's that's global education too. So um, we're very proud of, of Mandy Manning from our state of Washington here, who's leading that effort. So um, I mean, there's no shortage of opportunities and um, challenges that we need to address and. and bring the skills and the competencies to our students to, to be able to do that. So the book is set up in lessons by grade level. And Sarah, your lesson in the book centers around building empathy and cultivating global curiosity about current events, uh, such as uh, natural disasters and like the aftermath that occurs. Tell our audience a bit more about that. Sure. Um, well, and I, I also want to build on what Noah was just talking about. It's not just bringing in um, the, gl the global perspective into a classroom. Global education doesn't see the lo local and global as mutually exclusive. So with, um, with my lesson that I developed for the book, I mean, part of it was modeled on an exercise that all of us global learning fellows teachers participated in while we were together in DC. And it's the activity at, at the opening of this lesson where students allocate resources, which in this case are glittery stickers on a world map, um, so that um, they can distribute resources to areas that have been affected by natural disasters earlier this year. And, uh, the areas of the Caribbean, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, where Hurricane Maria struck, and in Mexico, where there were the earthquakes, those were the top-ranking locations that got the glittery stickers uh, in my classroom. And when we had our discussions where students were describing how they chose to focus, they always said something to the effect of, well, my family is there, or I've been there, or such and such classmate is from there. And that's not surprising for me to hear that that my middle schoolers framed their responses through the lens of their personal or local experiences and their connections. Um, but what it revealed is that students have a huge capacity for empathy and for helping others, um, and especially in the aftermath of, of tragic events, but that this empathy has to be sparked or activated by visuals or some other kind of concrete experience. Um, so then the additional articles and activities in our lesson plan open up options for further study, further hands-on experiences, group work, or even charitable fundraising projects or service learning projects, depending on how teachers 
would like to work that into their existing curriculum. Personally, I went the route of reading and responding to articles because I was working on um, a nonfiction reading and annotating skill set. Um, but our group had a number of science teachers who were interested in linking the physics of waves to tsunami damage uh, occurring in coastal cities. Um, but always we wanted to keep the question of how can people respond? How can we respond? Uh, what prevents us from responding? Um, those questions, keeping those in the forefront of our mind. Very, very cool. So Noah, your lesson is very compelling. Also, you had 12th grade students adapt what they are learning to teach younger students, which I think is amazing, uh, or their peers in a lesson that addresses one or more of the UN sustainable development goals. And so you had these driving questions like what issues in today's world do you see as global issues and why and how do these issues impact people, societies in the world? Tell us more about that lesson. Sure. And, and first of all, it doesn't have to be 12th grade students. And I think a lot of all of these lessons in the book are very much adaptable and can be shifted around. You can have any group of older students teaching a group of younger students. And, and the idea for this lesson um, originated in a class that I used to teach um, called Global Leadership. And um, three times each semester, uh, my students would take what they've learned about a various global issue. We studied water scarcity or climate change or um, global migration. And then they would uh, develop uh, about an hour-long lesson for a group of fourth or fifth graders. And then we'd walk down to a nearby elementary school and they would teach that lesson. Um, so part of the, the vision behind this lesson is that, you know, we often fall into the trap of, of, telling our young students that um, they are the leaders of tomorrow. They are the leaders of the future. And I think that's a, a mistake. Um, really, our young people are leaders today, and they can be leaders today. We're, wa we're watching um, teenagers all over Europe lead walkouts uh, around climate change. We're, we've seen what's happened in, in our own country with uh, the issue of gun violence. So young people are leaders today, and we, we need to empower them. And so um, when we talk about educating for global citizenship or global education. Learning about the world is one part. Teaching the competencies like uh, collaboration, um, effective communication of ideas, building empathy, um, those are all very important too. But there's, there's also the idea of taking action. Um, and the action component of global education um, comes through in this lesson where um, it, it can feel overwhelming for uh, young people, when they look at an issue like climate change or water scarcity, um, what can I do? What can I do that's not just raising money or um, something that will actually involve me uh, working with other people to address this problem? And so teaching, um, empowering them to teach younger students is a form of action. Um, the, there are many ripple effects. Those younger students will go home and talk with their families, talk with their parents, um, who knows what can come out of that, right? So, um, and also for, for my, in my experience teaching that class, um, these were the most transformative moments of learning for the students where, uh, even the, the, the kids who I was a little bit worried about, uh, working with fourth graders or fifth graders because they had some of their own challenges in high school, they always rose to the occasion. And, um, it was just a powerful leadership growth opportunity for them. So, um, the issue itself doesn't necessarily matter. Um, it could be any of these important global issues as content, but it's, it's also the, the learning experience. It's experiential learning is really what it is um, that the older students get to go through as they teach uh, the lessons. So I'd love to talk about how this book actually came together because I found the first few pages of it absolutely fascinating. And Glenn and I spent um, the better part of uh, a whole segment last week talking about how teachers aren't collaborating enough. Um, you know, we're lucky to, and I, I assume you guys are the same in the sense that you spend a lot of your time working with other teachers, but there is, you know, 8 million teachers in North America. A large majority of them are not working together. Um, and so the first few pages of this book literally talk about how you guys all were together in a group in an, in DC and, and were there together for a few days, I assume, and, and worked on a whole bunch of the content for this book together. Um, I'd love to hear about that. And I'd love to hear about the process 
um, um, putting the book together afterwards, and then also kind of how you've continued to work together even now, you know, uh, since the book has come out. Sure. Yeah. Um, back in October of last year was when our fellowship year kind of kicked off. And it was as much about getting the, the context of this global education, why it's important, and some of the, the background of it before we really dove into the content of making K through 12 lessons that we're going to put in a book later in the spring. Um, so the conditions were really created uh, for this amazing collaboration that happened all year long. Um, we started our weekend in Washington, D.C. Um, with some lectures and presentations by the NEA Foundation staff. And for this book project, we collaborated with Harvard education professor, Dr. Fernando Reimers, who's um, written extensively on this topic and, and is one of the, the leaders of teaching teachers how to adopt a global perspective in their teaching. Um, and so we were broken down into groups by grade level, about five or six teachers per grade, and we got uh, a start. And before we even left DC, all of our groups then shared out. We got some feedback from one another. We saw where some of our lesson plans uh, kind of aligned and where one grade could build off of another. For example, the third and fourth and fifth grade lesson plans all have something to do with water and water scarcity and access to water. So it was really helpful to see some of those connections being built, even after we'd only had about 90 minutes or two hours to get this process started. Yeah. Uh, so then after their, that initial weekend, uh, all of the 46 fellows, we went back to our states, we continued teaching, and we continued working on this global competency coursework that the NEA Foundation led us through. It was uh, multiple hours of like, professional development that was self-paced. And a few of us even had some former global learning fellows act as mentors. And we would have these monthly check-ins um, and calls to touch base about our progress with the lesson and troubleshooting and and our our lessons in general for just our schools and how we're doing with incorporating some of these ideas that had been uh, activated as part of our as part of our retreat. And fortunately, I was paired with another one of the members from my eighth grade lesson group uh, and as part of our mentor mentee team. And these conversations helped us with our lessons for the book. And it also helped each other plan our lessons. Uh, she would give me some ideas, our mentor would give me some ideas. And she asked us for help planning this um, global learning after school club where she was trying to incorporate some food and then a pen pal activity with a partner teacher in Tanzania. So there were a lot of a, a lot of ideas um, that were able to be developed because we had these this space to be collaborative in. Um, and then later in the year, the NEA Foundation staff let us know that we were our lesson plans were going to be evaluated by some curriculum specialists from Better Lesson, and that was really really helpful to um, have have an outside eye kind of look at across the board all of the K through 12 lessons and and take a look at aligning them uh, for some quality and consistency and it because uh, we had been up till that point. Uh, working among ourselves and trying to coordinate through email and some Google Hangouts and Skype conversations and delegating who's doing what tasks from assessment to writing the synopsis and who's implemented what part of the lesson and who's had a colleague try it out. And then uh, that gave us a chance to put everything in a, in our shared documents and then have it be looked at and then have someone come back and say, all right, this part's really strong, but this part you could work on. And so that outside feedback was really helpful. So there were a lot of structures along the way, um, providing some context um, as far as that background information of what our goals really were. And then we had some help and nudges in actually creating and improving our content. Um, and so then after that, after the book came out in May, we still had all these structures. We still had the mm -hmm. relationships that we built. Um, we still had the Facebook group that we were really active on. People were using Twitter uh, chat hashtags like Global Ed and Global Sped for special education. And uh, recently, a really cool thing just happened um, between uh, Erin, one of our teachers from Fort Collins, Colorado. Her French class wrote and... Um, produced a, a, like a script that is encouraging people to donate 
to their school's project that was raising money for uh, water, clean water and sanitation projects in Haiti. Wow. And so they, they wrote this script in French and then got some, I think, video images. And another one of our teachers, Joe, in Miami, Florida, his high school video production class put their script and images into a video that they were um, then they were able to use as uh, promotional material for, for getting the word out about this um, project that the class in Colorado was coming up with. So there have been so many cool opportunities to collaborate, uh, like via Empatico and Flipgrid and Padlet and all of these, like, teachers mm-hmm. are now, like, connecting with each other in ways enhanced by technology, but because we were all in the same place at the same time at one point. Um, and then all some of these asynchronous things can be happening. Not to mention we spent uh, several days together in South Africa last summer so um, as part of the fellowship. Wow. So that was also <laughs> an opportunity to um, come together and, and brainstorm ideas. And I, you know, I'm engaged in a very low-tech um, collaboration right now with a fellow from South, uh, South Dakota and her Spanish one students and my Spanish one students do a letter exchange. And so um, even, yeah. even that is, is hard to set up if, if you don't start forming these, these relationships, these connections. So Noah and Sarah, how are people able to reach out to you guys, get in touch, connect with you? Uh, I mean, Twitter, I guess, is a good mm-hmm. way, to, good thing to share. How can people connect with you guys? Sure. Um, I have a, a Twitter handle. It's at Marchef. M-A-R-C-H-E-W, and the NEA Foundation has its own Twitter handle, um, and they're super, really responsive. And, and I would also encourage people, yeah, to check out the Global Ed or Global Sped hashtags for Twitter chats. Um, that's mm-hmm. a, on Sunday nights is the special education-specific one. Awesome. And often on Thursdays is Global Ed Chat uh, okay. on Twitter as well. And I'm at, my handle is nzeichner, Z-E-I-C-H-N-E-R, and uh, sure, track me down. Um, I'd be happy to talk with anyone about um, advancing global education in our schools. Fantastic. Thanks, uh, Sarah and Noah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Mike Washburn. My co-host is Glenn Irvin. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Glenn is at Irv Spanish on Twitter. I can be found on Twitter at Mr. Washburn. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we'd love if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast or Google Play Store. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost and this helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Schoology, for supporting us. Check out Schoology.com to learn how they can help you advance what's possible. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and we'll see you soon.